and peace to you from God, the Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our gospel text this morning opens with the religious leaders, the chief priests, and the elders coming to Jesus with two questions, which is really the same question. By what sort of authority are you doing these things, and who gave this authority to you? The question begs for context. What sort of things has Jesus been doing, and what kind of authority does it take to do them? Well, to set the context, it is Monday, Monday morning of Holy Week, the day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the day after he drove out those who bought and sold in the temple, the day after he overturned the tables of the money changers and those who sold pigeons in the narthex, the day after the children had cried out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the day after, as Matthew records it, these leaders were indignant. They have been stewing all night. And now as Jesus enters the temple again to do God knows what, he begins to teach the people. And the religious leaders come over to Jesus with a question of authority. After all, theirs was the authority for the temple precincts. Theirs was the authority, the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the people. Theirs, given by God to Aaron and his sons as a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations, as Moses wrote in the Torah, how dare you, they must have been thinking. Now, I may have read a little more angst into the text than Matthew records, but I think it is fairly obvious that the question of authority is a trap. If Jesus claims a human authority, they can trump him by dragging out the Torah. The charge would be subversion, usurping the office of the priesthood instituted by Yahweh himself in the wilderness at Sinai. On the other hand, if Jesus claims a divine authority, the charge is blasphemy, pure and simple. It would be a claim to be God, a claim worthy of stoning. Jesus' response, however, is to answer a question with a question. If you will tell me, I also will tell you by what sort of authority I am doing these things. It is a different question, but actually the same answer. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? I invite you now to step back a moment from the confrontation in the temple. Step out of the story and put yourself into the place of Matthew's audience as he is writing this text. You have been reading, or more likely hearing read to you, this book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does the reader at this time, what do you know regarding the baptism of John? John came preaching, Repent, for the reign of heaven stands near. In verses 7 through 10 of chapter 3, the Baptist has a warning for perhaps some of the same individuals who are confronting Jesus on this Monday morning. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Then in verses 11 and 12, John prophesies concerning the one coming after him, 
the one who is mightier than he, the one whose baptism will be with fire and with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and unquenchable fire awaits the chaff. And what happens next in Matthew's biography of Jesus? A baptism. But this is a critically important point to note. It is the only baptism that Matthew narrates in his Gospel. Jesus comes to John, but John would defer. I myself have need to be baptized by you. No, Jesus corrects. It is in this way fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus goes down into the water, and the Spirit descends, and a voice from heaven comes and says, This one is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This much we, the readers of Matthew's Gospel, know about the baptism of John. Now the chief priests and the elders, they, however, do not understand it this way. But we must. We must if we are faithfully reading the entire, the entire text. Jesus' question points back three years to the events at the Jordan. It is not about Christian baptism, or even entirely about a baptism for repentance. It is all about who stands in the temple on this particular Monday morning. So we return to Jesus' question, John's baptism, whence was it, and by whose authority, from heaven or from man? The religious leaders, of course, refused to answer. They knew that the crowds would be angry if they said that John's ministry was just that of a mere man. But they also would not admit that John was one who may have come from God. True to his word, then, Jesus in turn does not reveal the source of his authority. In a sense, the exchange is ended. And our regular lectionary reading for this week would have us end with verse 27. However, the parable that follows is integrally connected with the question of authority. Now, we probably all know the story of the father and his two children. Many very practical sermons have been preached on this text. The second child usually gets the bulk of our attention. The yes-no child. The child who says yes with his mouth but no with his feet. We have a name for these kind of children, hypocrites. In the larger context of Matthew, we can now jump ahead to chapter 23 and Jesus' sevenfold judgment against the Jewish religious leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In the visible exercise of the faith, these were, after all, the best of the best. They made their phylacteries broad, and their fringes long. They loved the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue. They loved greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But they were, just as Jesus describes them, whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but within full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. But what about today? What about in the church? Do we have children that say yes with their mouths, but no with their feet? Absolutely. There are, there are many who know the scriptures backwards and forwards, 
and yet hold positions that oppose the rule of faith. There are more, they are more than happy to offer reasoned proof texts in defense of their heretical positions, but ultimately their reason ends up denying the inspiration and inerrancy of that same word of God. Other yes and no children will go through the motion of public confession and receive the absolution with joy, but they leave the divine service unchanged in attitude and unchallenged to amend their sinful lives. Old sins become comfortable sins that cheapen the grace of Christ. Yes and no children can know their catechism and can rightly divide law and gospel. But the gifts of the Spirit, kindness, patience, and humility are not mirrored in their lives. Even worse, yes and no children can at times be found in positions of leadership. They replace the peace of God's grace with the tension of rivalry. They destroy harmony with distrust and suspicion. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! But woe to me, woe to you. Sadly, there are times when my feet do not follow the words of my mouth, times when I need and when you need to repent, times when I am strong on words but short on follow-through. Polite conversation is no substitute for Christian love, Christian love for God and for each other, and both are word and in our action. So far we have the second child, but then let's turn again to the first child, the one who says no with his lips, but afterwards he changed his mind and went. As we read in the parable, the response of the religious leaders, their answer resonates with our American ideals. As a people, we are inveterate pragmatists. We are supremely interested in results. Despite what might have been said, the vineyard was worked that day, and the worker deserves his wages and commendation, right? Well, not so fast. In response to their answer, the first, Jesus immediately points to notorious sinners entering the reign of heaven, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Not Yes, no people, or no, yes, people, but no and no people. But they believed John and repented, and so became a part of the end-time reign of heaven that was even then breaking into the world in the person of Jesus. And we are, I believe, a little too lenient on the first child, the no, yes child who does the will of the Father. Yes, he works the vineyard, but he does so in the context of grave sin. Abdu Murray points out that Eastern cultures are collectivistic or communal, which means that each person's value, dignity, integrity, and their very identity are derived from how he or she is perceived by their community. To say no to one's father would be to bring shame to the child, to shame the father, and to shame the entire family. Remember the fourth commandment, the only one with a promise, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
and we learn in our catechism that we should fear and love God so that we honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. No yes may get the work done, but it still incurs God's wrath, God's righteous judgment and shortness of days. Now, as I said earlier, practical sermons can and are preached on this parable, but they tend to focus on the law. Something, therefore, is missing. Something we need for life, to live life as God's redeemed children. That can be found in verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. And what is this way of righteousness? It is the same righteousness of which Jesus spoke to John in the Jordan. In this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is God's righteousness. It is God's deeds of salvation and judgment. What God is doing in Israel and the world now that his reign has come in Jesus. Which child, therefore, did the will of the Father? Perhaps you have noticed that I have always referred to the two children of the Father in this parable and not sons, as it is recorded in our ESV translation. This is deliberate and literal. The Greek is technon and not huios. There is only one son in Matthew chapter 21. The son of David, as the children shouted in the temple, the son of the vineyard owner in the parable that follows our text, the obedient son whom the father sent and was killed by the wicked tenants, my beloved son in the Jordan and on the Mount of Transfiguration. This son lived a perfect life of obedience, and he died a perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. John came in the way of righteousness. He came to point to the righteous Son who became our righteousness by his death and resurrection. Jesus describes this Son as my Lord. What is it to become a Lord, Luther asks in the large catechism? It means that he has redeemed and released me from sin, from the devil, from death, and from all misfortune. A righteousness given, you are redeemed. Luther now continues, He has snatched us poor lost creatures from the jaws of hell, won us, made us free, and restored us to the Father's favor and grace. As his own possession, he has taken us under his protection. How? By whose authority? By his precious blood. By his innocent suffering and death, he purchased, and he won me, and he won you. To him, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, authority we can trust in any and every circumstance. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, in order that we might be baptized into his righteousness. You can trust the authority of that baptism. In Christ Jesus, it remains eternally effective. Hear and believe his voice and the word proclaimed. Christ's word proclaimed. Jesus protects us with the full authority of heaven and on earth that we might live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness.
To him be the glory. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.